This is the Accidental Safety Pro brought to you by Vivid Learning Systems and the Health and Safety Institute, episode number 40. My name is Jill James, Vivid's Chief Safety Officer, and today I'm joined by Cindy Baldwin, who is a certified industrial hygienist with Terracon Consultants. Cindy is joining us from Iowa today. Welcome to the show, Cindy. Thanks, Jill. So we haven't had very many industrial hygienists on the on the podcast yet, so thank you so much for agreeing to to share your wisdom today. You're very welcome. So Cindy, you've been in IH for a little while now. How long has it been? Uh, 38 years, actually. Oh, wow, that is awesome. Uh, that doesn't years. count that doesn't count the time I spent in graduate school. <laughs> so you have some wisdom to share today for anyone who maybe is as a budding industrial hygienist or maybe someone who's who's thinking of maybe expanding their safety practice. Well, I have a lot of experience at any rate. Mm-hmm. So Cindy, uh, if you've been listening to the podcast, you know that uh, we try to start things out with asking people to tell their story of how did health and safety find you? assuming it uh, might have been accidental. It, it was totally accidental. Uh, I, ha- I have an undergraduate degree in biology and sort of planned to work in a laboratory mm-hmm. and couldn't find a job working in a laboratory. And what I did find a job as was as a secretary in the mm-hmm. microbiology department at Colorado State University. And they hired me because part of my job was to type technical papers Hmm. and they thought that my biology degree would be useful there you'd know the vernacular Uh Mm uh-huh and maybe could read their handwriting (laughs) and could and could spell all of those words yes Hmm. so so that was part of my job the other part of my job was to clear students for graduation Hmm. and also to kind of manage the um, graduate student applications So the uh, microbiology department had four different kind of degree tracks, Mm -hmm. one of which was industrial hygiene. Mm -hmm. And so in in kind of, you know, helping students to complete their graduation requirements, uh, over time I took some classes just because mm-hmm. I was interested mm-hmm. and wanted to learn more about it. And industrial hygiene was really kind of what grabbed me. Mm-hmm. And in the end, I went ahead and got my master's degree in industrial hygiene from Colorado State University. So how did, how was it that IH out of those job, out of those um, degree tracks, how was it that that one grabbed you? So I was really kind of interested in doing something that helped people, but I didn't want to be a nurse or a doctor. Yeah. So the industrial hygiene was like, you know, something that was uh, working with people and mm-hmm. helping to protect them from hazards. And mm-hmm. it, it really just kind of, kind of snagged me. I mean, I, there were other areas of public health that I could have gone into because actually the degree was environmental health. I could have mm-hmm. gone into public health administration or, uh, but administration, you know, it's kind of boring. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you wanted to help people. I wanted, yeah, I wanted to get out mm-hmm. and, and uh, see things and 
do things and help people. So mm-hmm. the industrial hygiene, you know, it was just a total, total out of the blue kind of a thing that I had no idea even existed. Uh, and that mm-hmm. was in uh, 1970-ish sometime. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> that I, that I, pro- I started working there. Yeah, and I'm guessing you may have been a minority as a female at that time in, in that part of science. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I yeah. was. Uh, yeah. I think we might have had, there was at least one other woman in the grad in graduate school at the same time I was because we worked on the same project together. Maybe mm-hmm. there was one mm-hmm. other one, but all the other students were men. Mm-hmm. at that time and in you know most of my career it was always great to go to a conference because there were hardly ever any women in the restroom you didn't know there wasn't much of a wait in line <laughs> oh, oh my gosh that's still the case it's getting better I know but it... <laughs> it still is but yeah you're right it's getting better oh man so so you you finished your master's degree what did you envision while you were doing that what the job might be like what would you pursue or how was that going in your head? I don't know that I had any real particular type of job in mind. I just knew that I want, wanted to do something different from being a secretary. Yeah. So I graduated in 1981, which was not a good time to graduate. The mm. economy was not in good shape. And, and that's how I wound up in Iowa. <laughs> I got an offer to work for OSHA Consultation. Mm. And it was pretty much the only job offer I got. Mm-hmm. So mm. I took it. Yeah. And spent three years driving around Iowa thinking, I can't believe I get paid to do this. <laughs> and so to, for, for our listeners to remind them, Iowa is a state plan OSHA state, correct? That's correct. Yes. And, and so maybe explain um, what OSHA consultation means by way of um, OSHA and what that means in a state setting. So it's for industry in the state, primarily aimed at small industries that don't have their own health and safety resources and and don't have the uh, money usually to spend on hiring a consultant. Mm -hmm. So the the, um, idea is that the service is free. Mm -hmm. The company has to request the services and agree to fix whatever health hazards or safety hazards are identified that would be OSHA violations. Mm-hmm. So then, you know, the um, consultant visits the, the client and we do the survey. You know, if it's industrial hygiene, it was noise or air monitoring. And when I started, 1981 is right when hearing the hearing conservation amendment went into effect mm-hmm. so i did oh i did i can't even begin to guess how many noise surveys i did uh-huh. <laughs> to see wow. if hearing conservation was required sure but so wow. it was it was just uh traveling around the state uh i was amazed at the different kinds of industries in the state and still am to this Mm -hmm. day in the little tiny towns probably all over the country yeah people would be amazed at what kind of industry is in those towns Mm -hmm. Uh, 
you know, some of it's fairly normal. Some of it's really, really out there. You would never imagine that somebody could be doing this in the middle of of uh, Midwestern Iowa. Yeah. Do Do you remember any that kind of still stand out in your mind? Uh, so one of the one of the companies that I went into was um, cha- a chain and sling company. Yeah. And what was memorable about that was the the man that started that company invented the overhead crane. Whoa. Yeah. Interesting. In Iowa, home of the overhead crane. Home of the overhead. <laughs> and and he and he invented it to get hay into his hay mow up in on the you know top level of yes. his barn. Mhm. Oh, interesting. Uh there there's uh Oh, gosh, I can't think of anything right off the top of my head that, oh, I know, button making. Mm. Muscatine, Iowa used to be the pearl button capital of the world. And at the time that I did work there, there were still three button manufacturers uh, working in Muscatine. I think maybe they've all closed by now. But Mm -hmm. it was fascinating to see how buttons are made. And sewing is a hobby of mine. And mm-hmm. so it's interesting to see how the how the buttons were made and and shaped and colored and uh, very it fascinating. was fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. So are, are buttons, um, if they're not metal, are they like poured? Like, a, is it like a little, little into a it's that a, makes buttons? <laughs> it's a resin poured into a rotating drum. Okay. And so the the resin, you know, is spread out through centrifugal force and and Mm -hmm. it's heated Mm -hmm. and the it cures until the sheet is still flexible but solid Mm -hmm. and then they they stop the drum and then cut the sheet out and run it through a a, uh, press that that punches out button blanks in whatever size sure and then they they run them through machines that you know, put bevels on the edges and mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. beads on them, or you know, put, put drill the holes and sure, right, or a logo or whatever, uh, right. And they are um, the ones that they can actually do colors in the drums with different layers, but the ones that I saw were just basically white or clear, mm-hmm. and those they dye in mm-hmm. vats of of dye or they did at that time mm-hmm. vats of dye that they just put the buttons in a you know like a strainer kind of a thing and dip mm-hmm. it in the dye wow that's so I, interesting it was a, a terribly terribly noisy place as you I'm might sure. imagine i'm sure wow. and then the I, buttons are tumbled with i think it was little blocks of wood hmm. to polish them mm-hmm. and make them shiny hmm. it was really cool hmm. That's really interesting. You know, I th- I think you said you're traveling around Iowa, the countryside, for three years. I did similar with OSHA in, in my home state, um, traveling as well. And, and yeah, the things that you get to see, you know, you just don't drive by things the same way after that. Right. Because you remember, you, you might have, you might be driving by the place again, but you just think, gosh, I wonder what happens in there. You know, like the first place I went into that was like, 
a wool carding facility. So carding oh, wool yeah. and the wool was being carded and the the carding machine that was making the wool into eventually I think it was like a mattress topper or something. It was huge. It was this giant, giant room that was this huge one singular machine. And it had so many moving parts on it. I thought, oh, my gosh, how am I? Where do I even start looking (laughs) for hazards on this thing? But it was so interesting to learn about this wool carting thing or you know you drive by some other place and it does something with ferrets and ferret farming and making some specific equipment to care for ferrets you know i mean it's just it's sort of bizarro all the things that we consume as consumers when you get into a retail space at least my eyes look at things and go hmm I know how that might have been made or i wonder how that was made (laughs) and i and i think that also uh kind of makes us more likely to take tours of places that do these kinds of things too i i did a went on a tour of a sorghum factory Mm. uh, in iowa where they make sorghum molasses and it was an old 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 plant with Mm -hmm. the pulleys you know that Mm kind of ran the machines up Mm -hmm. in the rafters you know and you're Mm -hmm. thinking oh my god pinch points and you know Uh uh it huh. it was it was pretty amazing. So is sorghum explosive? Mm, I don't. Good question, right? Yeah, I, mean, I don't. I mean, remember. all those all those products are like you know they in the in the in the making of those products. It's and dust right. that's created. It's always the question in my mind: like, can this blow up? I don't remember that it was extraordinarily dusty. Okay, but. I'm sure that it's, you know, at least in some portions, early portions of the the process, that that might have been an issue, yeah. or at least something to be aware of. Yeah. And might have been covered under OSHA's grain standards sure. even then. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. So three mm-hmm. years you're traveling around the mm-hmm. Iowa countryside. Did the state of Iowa give you a better car than the state of Minnesota gave me? No. <laughs> How many times were you left sitting on the side of the road with a broken down state vehicle? <laughs> well, actually, I I guess that never did happen to me. So maybe I did have a better car. <laughs> oh, yeah, I had a few alternators go out <laughs> oh. state vehicles. Uh, luckily, oh. it was never in the winter, so it was uh, <laughs> it was good. Yeah, that that was the. That was the only time I really didn't enjoy driving around Iowa. It's in the winter yeah. time. Right. Right, trying yeah. to get to these places. So right. what happened what happened after the OSHA consulting gig? So then I went to work for an uh for industry manufacturing plant, uh large Fortune five hundred uh company mm-hmm. as their industrial hygienist and they hired me to do hazard communication for them. Mm. Uh, so this was uh, maybe a while. It was a while before hazard communication went into effect. Sure. So they didn't, you know, they they hired me to give me time to to come up with the program. Mm-hmm. And uh, so the first thing I had to do was inventory all the chemicals in the plant. Mm, wow. <laughs> yeah. So that was uh, a lot of you know going around looking and cabinets and 
on shelving and talking to people about what they were using and so was this on a this with a clipboard and a pen before there were barcodes yep. and mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. yeah and I had a card file <laughs> for all of all of the chemicals <laughs> and we did have they did have some material safety data sheets for things they knew were hazardous mm-hmm. uh, gonna be hazardous wastes actually. Mm-hmm. But uh, the vast majority of things in the facility, there were no, there was no information on. So, writing letters to manufacturers and distributors to get material safety data sheets, and oh my gosh, I, and I want to say I probably had a list of somewhere between maybe fifteen hundred to almost two thousand chemicals by the time I got through that facility. And it wasn't just the manufacturing operations. We had uh, kind of an R&D group also. Mm-hmm. That's and, even trickier. Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. they were they were accustomed to, you know, going out and, or maybe talking to a rep and getting a sample of whatever it was they the rep was wanting to sell. And, you know, they might play around with it for a little bit. And, maybe yeah. they then they stick it in a, a cupboard and forget about it <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so and you're finding it gosh uh, any anybody who's listening to this who's using an online program now to do the inventories and to oh, use yeah. the world wide web to find safety data sheets yeah. oh my gosh you um were definitely a pioneer in this and all before has come even came into play right so you've seen the evolution of hazard communication, of material safety data sheets to safety data sheets to mm-hmm. GHS. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So w- what's your opinion of the globally harmonized system? Well, you know, old dogs and new tricks kind of thing. Yeah. I, I don't really like them because I have to go several pages in to find the list of chemicals and exposure mm. limits. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, because that's always the first thing that I looked at. Sure. But Makes sense. And and I, so I'm not working directly with employees these days, so I don't know how the I don't know if the the signal words and the phrases are helping people understand. Mhm. Uh, but the data sheets have gotten longer. Mhm. Uh you know, the the more information you have, the less I think people tend to look at it. So right. too long didn't read. Yep. <laughs> yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, you know, I think it's great to have the information. I, I still don't know if it's very effective. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So yeah. as, as part of hazard communication, of course, it wasn't just finding out what we had. I did develop a training program. Mm-hmm. and deliver the training and uh, I also I had one another manufacturing facility in another state and also was responsible for the sales and service uh, offices around the country mm-hmm. and they all had stuff too that you know had to be considered so that kept me pretty busy but people kept asking me what are you going to do when hazard communication is done <laughs> 
And you're like, I already have a list of like 20 things in my head, right? Well, number one, hazard communication isn't done ever. Right. It's right. ongoing. Right. And and then there was lots of other stuff to do too. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, noise and chemical yeah. usage and all kinds of things like that. So, so, so how, that was... Go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to ask, how did the training piece go for you? And was that the first time you had done any training with people? Uh, The training went well. And I had gotten past my fear of standing up in people as an undergraduate. Because Mm -hmm. I had a teacher who required an oral presentation in every class. And I took Mm -hmm. every class that he taught. Mm-hmm. So I did a lot of oral presentations mm-hmm. uh, and and then had to do a, an oral presentation for my master's thesis mm-hmm. uh, for the department. That was a requirement of the department. So, the, sure. you know, not quite exactly, you know, training, but at least I was over, yeah. you know, being terrified to stand up in front of people and talk. Right, you were practiced by then. Right, right. So actually it kind of got to be a, how do I keep this interesting and entertaining for the people and me too? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because if, you, if you've if you done any kind of a presentation over and over again, you know, you kind of get to the point to where you're not really paying attention to what you're saying. Yep. It becomes becomes rote. Mm -hmm. It becomes rote. And sometimes you don't say things, you don't necessarily say what you meant to say. Mm -hmm. And sometimes people will catch you on it. And sometimes they don't. Maybe Uh they assume you meant to say what you said. Uh Or they weren't listening. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh, right. (laughs) Yeah. So it it was, um, I'm sure that I could have done a better job. But. You know, it was starting out, and I had a lot of people to train. Yeah. On three shifts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that oh was Oh, my gosh, it. you that were working around the clock. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So what happened after that manufacturing plant job, or how long were you there? So I was there for 10 years. Oh, wow. And then I transitioned back into private consulting. Well, I shouldn't say back into, into private consulting. Mm-hmm. And that's what I've done ever since. Wow. Great. So, C- Cindy, um, you know, as we're as we're talking, you've 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 mentioned a number of things that you did in the, in in these jobs. And I'm wondering if you might share with people who may not know, like industrial hygienists, I've always been amazed by the amount of gadgets and tools that you have <laughs> and their some of them very sophisticated and most everything you did do takes a lot of patience and time. Can you maybe run through like what's in an IH's toolkit or toolbox that you go around with and how often do you use those things and for what, for people who may not know? Mm-hmm. Well, so obviously it depends on, on what you're looking at. If you're, if you're looking at um, chemical exposures, uh, airborne exposures, then, you know, we're looking at how are we going to monitor for it, you know, mm-hmm. and, and there's there's lots of different techniques. We can use screening techniques like detector tubes 
or uh, direct reading instruments. There's not a whole lot of direct reading instruments for chemicals, but there are some. Mm-hmm. Uh, or we we go to laboratory-based methods where you know we're using some kind of absorbent tube and an air sampling pump, mm-hmm. and the people that we're monitoring wear that for the whole day uh, of their work shift. Mm-hmm. And and you have to you have to understand a uh, you have to understand the form of the airborne contaminant. You know, is it a liquid or a vapor or a mist or a particulate? Actually, mm-hmm. parti- mist is a form of particulate. Mm-hmm. You have to know what you're looking for and what form it is, so you can select the right sampling method. Mm-hmm. And NIOSH, the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health, publishes sampling methods. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the reasons why I go right to the chemical component section, because that's how I know what sampling method to use. I match up the chemical and the sampling method. Mm-hmm. Air sampling pumps have gone from pretty basic to having all kinds of uh, bells and whistles on them these days, you know, uh, elapsed time indicators and and uh, automatic starts and but I kind of like the simple ones that don't mm-hmm. have quite so many electronic gadgets on them they mm-hmm. seem to be a little more reliable you know when you when you have to put these like monitoring devices on an individual employee mm-hmm. is it hard to get them to agree to wear something for eight hours do people think you're listening to them you know like how does how does that work is it is there some intrepidation so it it depends i've had very few people absolutely refuse to wear something over my career most people are fairly cooperative Mm -hmm. but you know it is an imposition especially if they're wearing an air sampling pump you know you're going to hang that on their on a belt, mm-hmm. uh, on their pants if they're wearing a belt, mm-hmm. uh, and if not, then you've got to come up with another way to. Or if they've, I've had people wearing sweatpants or something like that, you know, that are not going to hold up a mm-hmm. a pump that weighs, you know, a pound or something like that. So then mm-hmm. you have to get creative or bring belts with you, mm-hmm. and uh, that you know they have to be able to do their job without the air sampling equipment interfering, they have to be able to, you know, go to the restroom and, and yeah. go to on break and all of that kind of thing. So mm-hmm. uh, it's, you know, a matter of um, explaining to the employee what you're doing and what we're going to ask them to do and then observing them throughout the day, not only to make sure that the equipment isn't uh, getting in their way, but also to observe what they're doing mm-hmm. and make notes about, you know, schedule and how many times they did whatever that they might have an exposure, that kind of thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, with the noise monitoring equipment, the noise dosimeters, that is something where people are really worried that we're recording them, that, you know, we're going to yeah. listen to what they say. And and so I mm-hmm. tell them, you know, that it's not a, a tape recorder, that it only measures sound. And, you know, they can they can say whatever they want to say. We're not going to listen to it. We're not going to mm-hmm. be able to listen to it. So, mm-hmm. uh, again, you know, most people are, are fairly willing to, to 
cooperate and tell you about what they're doing and, and mm-hmm. uh, explain the job. And, and it's usually only for one day. We do work right now with a company that we do quarterly monitoring for and they don't have a really large crew. So those guys are used to seeing us once a quarter and, and wearing the air sampling pumps, you know, maybe once, once or twice, three times a year, some of them. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you, you yeah, get to have get, a pretty good relationship yeah. with the people that you see a lot. Sure, sure. Yeah, so you've got you've got monitoring devices you know, for for chemicals, airborne things. You've got um, noise uh, monitors, noise dosimeters, and sound yeah, level meters. Sound level meters, right? Yeah. What else is in your toolkit? Um, maybe something that's unusual too. <laughs> so uh, we don't do this very often, but every once in a while we get a request to do some. Uh, monitoring or uh, re- non-ionizing radiation study. Oh, okay. So that requires a, you know, a whole different kind of equipment to be able to measure the non-ionizing radiation from whatever it happens to be. It could be some kind of equipment. It could be welding equipment. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I did a survey one time for a client who had a welder who'd had a pacemaker installed Hmm. and they were concerned Hmm. about you know the electromagnetic sure uh, radiation from the welder affecting his pacemaker interesting so cindy when you're doing monitoring i'm just thinking about your personal safety too um you know from your own visual observation and just knowing what you know because of your profession what makes you nervous or leads you to go "Mm, yeah I've got to protect myself here in a different way because I think this is bad like how does that work well so it that is certainly a consideration and and we take that very seriously at Terracon Uh, something that safety is something that that we consider with every project that we do and for industrial hygiene it's a matter of talking to the client to get an idea of you know what what kind of conditions we're going to find and truthfully I wouldn't say that I I don't know that I can think of a time maybe once or twice Mm -hmm. that I felt that I needed respiratory protection in order to be able to observe the operation Mm -hmm. safely most of the time I'm not that close to the operation I kind of try to stay away and out of the way of the people that are doing the work you know Mm -hmm. because my job is not to interfere with them Mm -hmm. but uh, noise is probably something that is is more of an issue because Mm -hmm. in a in a noisy operation you know we're out there for a while watching what's going on doing the sound level meter readings and so hearing protection is something that that we do wear on a regular basis Uh, the other thing that that i do periodically is asbestos surveys oh sure and so if we're going to disturb anything that's friable then we are wearing respiratory protection for that Mm -hmm. what what about with silica do you do some monitoring with that as well Yes, uh, again, we're doing that 
from more of a distance, yeah. trying to kind of, you know, stay out of of the actual plume, contaminant mm-hmm. plume. Although, you know, with a lot of these things, they're they're obviously uh, not visible. So yeah. we don't really, I guess I, I don't really know how far the silica, crystalline silica is going to go. Mm-hmm. Definitely want to stand upwind, mm-hmm. <laughs> not right. in the plume. Gosh, Cindy, I should have known you so long ago <laughs> to set my <laughs> mind at ease for some things. I'm just thinking about the time, you know, I'm not an IH and I think about the times that I got nervous about things because I didn't, you know, I didn't know. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm specifically thinking of when I was newly pregnant, like no one knew other than my husband and I at the time, and I was called to do a fatality investigation and it was oppressively hot and I needed to do interviews with employees and I knew that heat wasn't good, but I didn't, you know, like I didn't know like how hot is bad, (laughs) you know, like, or, or, or being able to take some time to do some, to do some monitoring with it. But I remember talking with the employer and like disclosing that to them and asking for a uh, air conditioned place to do the interviews um, for with the employees, which I would have never under other circumstances I wouldn't have done. And I, rem- I also remember a time being in a chicken barn, like an egg laying facility. Oh, yeah. Where the chickens are all up on one layer and all of the um, manure is collected on the second layer. And it piles up over, you know, like the course of a year and the ammonia smell really takes your breath away. And I remember yeah. thinking, okay, the warning properties with ammonia are doing what it's supposed to be doing. But is it over an exposure level? <laughs> you know? <laughs> Yeah, and, yeah. and you know those those kinds of facilities, uh, you know, I guess things kind of change as we go along. Years yeah. ago, I probably wouldn't have have thought twice about going into some place like that. Today, I probably would. Mm-hmm. Just you know, more knowledge, more experience, uh, and really, there's no reason to subject yourself to that kind of exposure when you don't mm-hmm. know what what it is. Yeah, I have done some ammonia monitoring, and it was a hog packing plant, meat hog meat packing plant. Yeah, and they their refrigeration was supplied by these huge ammonia engines, mm. and I walked into that area of the plant and about fell over from the you know it just like hits you in the face, but yeah. I I was monitoring the operators and. They they didn't really even notice it anymore, and they were not overexposed. They weren't anywhere near being overexposed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So sometimes those warning properties, you know, kind of you don't really exactly know where you step over the line of exactly. being overexposed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh-huh. you know, the warning property should tell you that you know you might want to protect yourself against it. But ammonia is kind of hard. You know, you don't just put on a dust mask for that. Right. You have to to know again. You have to know what you need to protect yourself against and get the mm-hmm. right kind of mm-hmm. cartridge, because mm-hmm. a organic vapor cartridge wouldn't help you with that either. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And employees don't know that unless they're trained and been taught to know that. Yeah, I had a an employee in a, a power plant uh, for it was for a an industry, so a coal plant, coal fired boiler you know, mm-hmm. and he was working shoveling coal 
you know, right around in that. I mean, he wasn't shoveling the coal by hand, but in that area. And he was wearing a respirator and he came over and he said, you know, I wear this respirator all day long and it doesn't do a, a, a bit of good. You know, I have coal dust on my face when I take the respirator off. And I said, well, let's take a look at it. Mm-hmm. And it turned out that it he had an organic vapor filter cartridge on there, oh. no particulate filter at mm-hmm. all. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm sure that there was some capture of particles, but a lot of them were getting through that organic sure. vapor cartridge. Yeah, and I mean, and that's it, respirators are so complex, and you can't make an assumption that people understand that they're not created equally right <laughs> with purpose yeah right so w- what else is in your in your tool toolkit you were talking about studying um ionizing radiation so not not so much ionizing radiation I'm but sorry, non, non-ionizing, non-ionizing mm-hmm. radiation mm-hmm. Uh, we do a little bit of ionizing radiation we do some radon surveys we also mm-hmm. do um we do some lead-based paint testing with mm-hmm. an x-ray fluorescence we were oh, talking about tools, you know, so we yeah. have fancy x-ray fluorescence analyzer to huh. test for lead and paint. Uh, and that has a radioactive source. Hmm. I'm not the radiation safety officer for uh, our office, so I don't get mm-hmm. involved in that too much. But uh, the let's see, one of the other things that we do a fair amount of is indoor air quality yeah. assessments. And that can be just you know, temperature, relative humidity, carbon monoxide, carbon dioxide. And we have instruments that do those four parameters to uh, Mm -hmm. mold, Mm -hmm. do a lot of mold investigations. Yeah. Would you say that um, is, is indoor air quality or specifically mold? Is that one of those sort of hot topic things that, that employers and employees are concerned about? It is. And this is the time of the year that we get a lot of people calling us and saying, you know, people are complaining about mold. Can you come out and do uh, an assessment? Mm-hmm. And so I, the first thing I do is ask if they've had a water intrusion event, because yeah. if you don't have water, you don't have mold. Mm-hmm. And most of the time they haven't, you know, it's just people are, are noticing that they're having a lot of allergy problems and they notice that when they get to work so they think there's mold in the workplace. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's actually happening I, I think is that this is the time of the year that leaves are starting to change color and, and drop and the leaf molds are sporulating mm-hmm. and we find we always do an outdoor mold test for comparison yeah. purposes, we find tens of thousands of spores per cubic meter of air outdoors mm-hmm. and maybe a few hundred indoors. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. They, and they, I can't, you know, these are not scientific tests. They're short-term five-minute air samples. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so we can't say without a, a good visual assessment and uh, you know conversations with people in the building to make sure that there isn't hasn't been some sort of water intrusion that isn't immediately obvious yeah. sometimes we'll find that we'll find it with the air samples but it I've I've seen 
a building that we had to tear the walls open to find the mold. We did not find it with air samples, but it was sure. there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and we based that on history of water intrusion in the building and uh, uh, complaints of people working in the building that were having really serious health effects. Yeah. But we yeah. really had to get aggressive to find it. Sure. And, and when we did, it was everywhere. Mm-hmm. And not all people are allergic to mold either. I happen to be one of those highly sensitive people to mold. Oh, and yeah. I can, like, I don't, I don't go to antique stores. Uh-huh. Uh, there's lots of moldy things. Or yeah. when my son was really little and I would buy, like, we would go to Goodwill and buy um, kids books. Mm-hmm. I did a sniff test on everything. I didn't, you know, didn't want those moldy books in my house because some of them were moldy, and and for me it causes a really intense headache almost immediately when I walk into um, a building. Yeah, uh, but not everyone is allergic. Either, yeah, I'm correct? not. No, I'm yeah. not. It doesn't bother me. I can smell it. You know, if if there's uh, you, you get really that overt. kind of dirty sock, mildewy yeah. odor, you know, th- yeah. that we associate with basements a lot. Mm-hmm. I can mm-hmm. smell that, but it doesn't bother me. Mm-hmm. But I do get a lot of calls from people that are worried about black mold. And yeah. uh, so then, you know, we can, we, can, we can have a whole long conversation about mold. But <laughs> we sure could. We sure could, right? Yeah. yeah so thank, thanks for sharing some of your things in your toolbox. What, what's your favorite um, thing to use? I really do like to do noise surveys. Uh-huh. Kind of where you started. Yeah, really. Kind of, maybe that's uh-huh. why, because I spent so much time doing that. But I I do enjoy, I guess, the uh, evaluating the data. Yeah. You know, looking at looking at the results. But, but truthfully, you know, the... Um, the just to be able to to look at operations and try to figure out what might be some kind of an issue for people you know it's really kind of a puzzle yeah. sort of a thing you know figuring out what what might be uh, a hazard to the employees and evaluating so sometimes the chemicals are kind of fun things too mm-hmm mm-hmm yeah, so would you say that solving the puzzle using using your training and techniques is maybe the fun part of being an industrial hygienist? Yeah, uh, I definitely I I would say that, and and the other thing that I t- things that I tell people that are fun about the job is uh, one is getting to see how things are made. Yeah, and that that's fascinating, and the other one is getting paid to be nosy. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. And and that's maybe one of the things that, that, uh, you know, we we kind of are, I don't know, get, we lose as we, as we grow up, you know, that, that inhibition about asking questions, you know, we don't, Mm -hmm. we don't seem to want to ask questions as we grow up, but that's what, you know, that's what we do Mm -hmm. as Mm -hmm. consultants. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, to be inquisitive. Yeah, you got to ask questions. You got to look in inside cupboards and and uh, 
you know, see see what kinds of things are are around that people might be exposed to. Right, right, right. Kind of digging in, being nosy, as you say. <laughs> curious is so, probably maybe a better word. <laughs> right? <laughs> Inquisitive, curious. Yeah, mm-hmm, there we go. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So you um, also, I think you've told me uh, in a previous conversation that you are a member of the IAHA and um, a fellow actually with the IAHA. Um, yeah. yeah. Tell 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 us a little bit about that, what it is, what it does for your career. Um yeah, for other people who are listening. So that's the American Industrial Hygiene Association. Mm-hmm. And I joined the Iowa, Illinois local section when I came to Iowa in 1981 and have served in many capacities. I've been a board member many times. I've been president twice. Hmm. Uh just been really deeply involved in in the organization over the years uh, and really found it to be very rewarding it's it's a you know that's how we networked before mm-hmm. social media we had mm-hmm. monthly meetings and we we got together to to share our knowledge and expertise and learn things and and it was also the um, you know kind of your if you had a question about something, there was probably somebody in the local section that, you know, had more experience than you or knew something about that particular thing that you could call to, to mm-hmm. get some input on. Mm-hmm. So I, I found it to be a, a really great resource and have, have really uh, enjoyed being a part of it and several years ago local section did me the honor of nominating me to be a fellow of national AIHA hmm. uh, and uh, in recognition of service to the local section and wow. uh, the, you know the work I've done over mm-hmm. the years in uh, training and and uh, just contributing to the profession overall yeah wow congratulations thank you yeah. So does does the organization still get together in person like it has been, or how does that work now? Well, uh, we're have, struggling a little bit. I think uh, most organizations are these days with getting people to participate and to be willing to to step up to be officers. Mm-hmm. We we are getting together. Uh, maybe a couple of times a year, we're actually going to be holding a professional, a one day professional development conference in October, jointly with uh, Nebraska Western Iowa AIHA local section. Mm-hmm. And we're gonna bring in a welding expert to talk about health hazards in welding mm-hmm. for a day. Interesting. So that, that's you know that it that's a networking kind of a thing we are it's going to be in in coralville in iowa mm-hmm. and so for anyone who's listening in the iowa nebraska area coming up this october 2019 yes october uh, 11th mm-hmm. 2019 okay and i'll post the announcement in, to linkedin okay oh. very good uh, it's what actually kind of got us in uh, uh to choosing this particular person is that his name is Dr. Michael Harris 
and he he wrote uh, an opinion piece for the journal uh, the occupational and environmental health mm-hmm. about iron fume which is the international agency for research on cancer has declared a carcinogen oh really so you know iron oxide which is what we you know looked for whenever we did welding fume monitoring has a pretty mm-hmm. high occupational exposure limit PEL mm-hmm. and you know it's not it's not innocuous but really we haven't really considered it a particular hazard but now that it's considered a carcinogen you know now it's another issue maybe so he's going to talk about that that and the fact that there isn't an occupational exposure limit for it and Mm -hmm. you know so what do we do yeah, yeah right. right. And of course, there's other health ha- hazards associated with welding fumes. So yes. it should be a yes. good, should be a good conference. We yeah, we also do back to the local section. We we yeah. also do the um, AIHA National AIHA has an online webinar series, and we buy that for the local section for the, mm-hmm. the we have an annual subscription to that. Mm-hmm. So whenever they do a, a webinar, we have we generally have two locations, one in Des Moines and one in Cedar Rapids for the live webinars. And then mm-hmm. our members can access the recorded webinars mm-hmm. after. So it's a way. Yeah. So it's a way for people to have continuing education. Correct. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, fascinating. So you said it's been a little hard to get um, people to be active in the chapter. Um, is is that, you know, particularly younger generations, or what are you seeing? I think it is younger generations. Uh, we we don't have a a lot of younger people in our chapter. Mm-hmm. And. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's because they're they aren't here in Iowa. Yeah. I think they're here, but I think some of it has has may is maybe due to employers not wanting to support these kinds of professional activities the way they did in the past. Sure, time away from work and um right. The expense of that, sure. sure. Right. And then people are busy, you know, they've got uh, families and and other activities that they want to do when they're not working, you know, they don't want to maybe think about work. Uh-huh. Right, right, right. Work-related <laughs> topics. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So for for those of you who are listening, um, a, a little while ago we started a Facebook community group just for this podcast the accidental safety pro and so if you're listening right now and maybe you're an industrial hygienist or maybe you um aren't but you have some ideas for cindy that she could bring back to her chapter or anyone who's part of of uh, professional um, organizations that are struggling with memberships and engagement if you want to start a conversation on the on the community group about that and like what how do we reinvent that in the 21st century what does it look like what might intrigue you for your own professional development or for camaraderie camaraderie between between uh, other professionals 
um, weigh in and um, clue all of us in, including Cindy. And maybe, maybe Cindy, you can take that back to your, take that back to your group. That'd be great. And the other thing that we're interested in is what, what's the best way to communicate? Sure. You know, it's, is it through Facebook or, I mean, I, I think we all recognize that social platforms are probably the way of the future, but you know, mm-hmm. which ones are people using? Right. Uh, you know, is there some out there that that we don't know about that might be a good a good option for a professional society to use as a communication tool? Right. Right. The other thing I might just mention is that AIHA handles their local sections a little differently than. The American Society for Safety Professionals does. You do mm-hmm. not have to be a member of National AIHA to be a member of a local section. Mm, okay. So we have people who are safety professionals in our group. We have people who, you know, maybe are uh, HR people with safety and health responsibilities. Uh, okay. We've got vendors. You know, uh, it's a pretty broad group of people that can belong to the local section. Sure, so you don't have to be a certified industrial hygienist to belong to be able to learn. Oh, no. And our membership cost for our local section is $25 a year. Oh, my gosh. So Just to be able to tap into the free webinars sounds like a pretty good value. Right, right. So with ASSP, you have to join the national to be able to belong to a chapter Mm -hmm. and so the I think that's maybe a big advantage that that we have for local sections for AIHA that ASSP doesn't sure sure well that's a good tip for people especially if they are dealing with uh, a meager or no budget Mm mm-hmm that sounds that sounds really smart. So you know, industrial hygiene is uh, one of those STEM fields, mm-hmm. and maybe for someone who's listening who um, is maybe working in safety or is thinking about what about industrial hygiene, and maybe they have already have a science degree or something. What tips would you give them for, you know, like if they want to take it to another level? What would you say they could do or explore? So a lot of, of us who have fallen into the industrial hygiene field got master's degrees or maybe even uh, doctorates. Mm-hmm. That's hard to do for a lot of people. You know, there's maybe not a graduate program nearby. Mm-hmm. Uh, the If there is a graduate program nearby, you know, maybe it's the classes are all held during the day and you have to work during the day, you know? Mm -hmm. So uh, there are some degree programs that are online. You can take classes online for lots of different uh, kinds of areas of the field. Uh, You need to kind of look around a little bit, but there are uh, the Agency for Toxic Substances and Disease Registry, I think it is. It's mm-hmm. ATSDR, which is part of the Centers for Disease Control, mm-hmm. has some online toxicology classes. Mm, wow. Uh, and they're free. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
there are the Indoor Air Quality Association has online classes for indoor air quality and mold. Though the uh, those are on demand, mm -hmm. like to our classes, and they do charge for those, but they're not extraordinarily extraordinarily expensive. Mm -hmm. And if you join, then you know you get a discount for them. Mm -hmm. um, AIHA offers several kinds of distance learning programs online mm -hmm. where you can take classes. Those, those can be kind of expensive, but mm -hmm. you know, you don't have to travel to right. take the class and you can do it at your own, at your own speed. Mm -hmm. uh, the American Conference of Governmental Industrial Hygienists offers classes. They do some webinars. I don't know if they have online Mm -hmm. classes but they do offer a lot of of um, in-depth type in-person classes so sure. I, I noticed that their in uh, ventilation class is coming up in I think November mm -hmm. and and that's you know like a week-long class in ventilation systems how they work and how you design them and Mm -hmm. uh, you get a couple stuff. of yeah you get a couple of good reference books when you take mm -hmm. the class mm -hmm. <laughs> wow those are really great resources who knew there were a so many um options and then second that there are so many for no or low cost thank you for sharing those tips yeah sure that's wonderful Cindy, um, really appreciate you being a guest today. This has been really interesting. Thank you for sharing your career and thank you for continuing doing what you're doing and especially to hold up the profession. Well, thank you for inviting me to be a guest. I've really enjoyed this and, and thanks for doing the podcast. It's, I've, I've really enjoyed listening to it. Oh, wonderful. Thanks for the compliment. I appreciate it. Well, thank you all for spending your time listening to this episode. And more importantly, thank you for the work that you all do to make sure your workers, including your temporary workers, make it home safe every day. If you'd like to join the conversation about this episode or any of our previous episodes, follow our page and join the Accidental Safety Pro Community Group on Facebook. And if you aren't subscribed and want to hear more, make sure to, to subscribe in iTunes, the Apple Podcast app, or any podcast player that you like. For past episodes, you can also find them in your favorite podcast player or at vividlearningsystems.com slash podcast. We'd love it if you'd leave a rating and review us on iTunes. It really helps us get the show out there. And share, of course, the episode with your friends. If you have a suggestion for a guest, including if it's you, please contact me at social at vividlearningsystems.com. Special thanks to Will Moss, our podcast producer. Until next time, thanks for listening.